Welcome to Living Faith, the podcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. Living Faith features the preaching and teaching ministry of First Baptist Church from our Sunday morning and evening services, as well as our Wednesday night Bible studies for students. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ so that the lost might be saved and the Christian might be equipped. God's primary tool for this kind of growth is the regular preaching and teaching of His Word. That's why here at First Baptist, our prayer echoes that of the psalm. Above all else, God's Word and God's name should be exalted. Let's open God's Word and prepare to hear from Him. Go to Romans chapter 1, and you might want to go ahead and have a marker or a finger or something uh, in the book of Habakkuk, the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. So if you need to take a moment to find that one, I will, <laughs> I will give you that time. Habakkuk chapter, well, it doesn't matter. It's about only three chapters, so we'll be there in a little while. In uh, 16th century Germany, there was a Roman Catholic monk, and he wanted to be a Roman Catholic priest. Uh, he had... Uh, started his life in law school and wanted to be a lawyer. His parents, his father had paid for it, Uh, sent him to law school. He was almost through and was going to practice law, of course, make lots of money, bring his family wealth and success and fame. And one day on a field, in the field, riding through the field on horseback, there was a lightning storm. And uh, here in Florida, we know about lightning storms. I did not until I moved here. I knew lightning I did not know lightning like I know it here. So I've never been out in a thunderstorm anywhere else where it had maybe literally run to find shelter somewhere until I was here, and that happened. So I understand a lightning storm now. I imagine this monk would have been in something like that because some lightning struck beside his horse and knocked him completely on his back. And thinking he was going to die, being a Roman Catholic, he called out to St. Anne, and he said, St. Anne, save me. If you save me, I'll become a monk. And he delivered his life over from practicing law in a secular institution, and he devoted himself to the Roman Catholic holy order of being a monk, secluding yourself away with other people who have made the same vows as you, devoting your whole life, full time, day and night, to the service of God, reading the Bible, prayers, scripture, at that time the Mass, and all sorts of things. While in the context of this monastery, this guy who had always been obsessed with the law, always been obsessed with legal matters and and, and knew the law as, as someone who was going to practice law, he came under conviction of something that shook him to his soul and would shake the rest of the world forever. And that was when he looked at God, this God who he was going to try to serve with his life as a monk and then a priest, when he looked at God, he saw a holy, perfect, righteous judge. And that's an accurate picture of God, is it not, from the Bible. And, and this monk, maybe for the first time in his life, now in a church setting, was able to actually hold a copy of God's Word and read it, albeit in Latin. And he came to face to face with this God who was righteous and holy and just and who said, I will judge sin and I will not simply pardon it. And this monk was shook to his core at the thought of having to face a holy, righteous judge in judgment because this monk knew more than anyone else probably at that time his own sinfulness. And as a monk, he made himself available to the Roman Catholic sacraments, all seven of them. From communion and baptism all the way down to penance. And penance, if if you're familiar with the Roman Catholic system or if you're from a Roman Catholic background, you understand the sacrament of confession. 
by going to one of the confessional booths and confessing your sins in that setting to a priest who then is able, by the power of the papacy, to absolve you or forgive you of your sins if you do a certain amount of things. This monk would spend longer than anyone else in his whole monastic order in the confessional booth. Everyone else would go in five, ten minutes, confess a few things, get their, their set list of orders to have those things removed from their record, go do them, they were fine. This guy was in there for hours every day. The repetitiveness, just the same old thing every single day for hours. And nothing could assuage his guilt. Nothing could remove his guilt from his own conscience. The more he looked into the Bible, the more he was convinced of two things. That God is holy and God is just and God is perfect. And number two, I'm a sinner and I deserve his judgment. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic system did not offer him any easy answers. It offered him seven sacraments. It offered him these holy orders, the, 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 the monk business he was involved in. It offered him the priesthood. It offered him all of these works, all of these rituals. One of the things it offered to people was something called indulgences. And indulgences in the Roman Catholic system at that time allowed people to pay a certain fee to the church. Think of it as an offering. And in exchange for this offering, you would receive so many years off of purgatory. And purgatory in the Roman Catholic system was a place that saved people went after they die to have the rest of their sins purged from them before they're able to go into heaven. And this would be hundreds, thousands, millions of years, depending on how much sin you had as a Christian. And that was the Roman Catholic system. So by paying a little money to the church, one of the jingles at the time was, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so there was this ad campaign out through the Roman Catholic Church and through several of the more advanced salesmen in that system that were able to go and collect thousands for the church. Why? Because who, being confronted with this holy, just, righteous God and knowing their own sinfulness, isn't going to pay a little bit or a lot or all they had for a little piece of paper that said, your sins are forgiven, purgatory free, you're, you're done. Right to heaven when you die because of your payment, because of your offering. Well, this monk looked around him. He actually went to Rome, the holy city. He saw the disillusionment that he didn't expect. He saw priests fornicating in the streets. He saw drunkenness and revelry and parties. He saw simony, simony, this idea of selling salvation for money at one's own, going in one's own pocket. He saw bishops that were able to trade and sell their offices as bishops and sometimes hold one, two, or even three bishoprics at the same time, something that was supposed to be illegal according to the church. He even saw corruption in the papacy itself, the office of the pope. And he was disillusioned to his core. He thought, surely the church has the way of salvation. If there's salvation anywhere, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, knows where salvation is. And how I can get it. How I can attain it. But nothing this guy did brought him any closer to removing that guilt from himself. More than any other person at that time probably, he observed everything he was supposed to observe. He said all the prayers he was supposed to say. He went to Mass every day. He confessed for hours. He went to Rome. He did the pilgrimages. Nothing could remove this guilt. But nothing drew his anger like seeing poor peasants all across his homeland being ripped off by the church, had their money literally stolen from them for these empty promises of salvation. So, 
He went to his room one day there in the monastery and crafted up 95 questions. 95 questions, just, just questions. Not a formal protest, not I'm going to leave the Roman Catholic Church, just 95 questions, 95 theses. And he went to the church there in his hometown of Wittenberg where he was serving and teaching the Bible, and he nailed them to the church door. And it wasn't any kind of big dramatic thing. It wasn't like he marched there and it was slow motion and Casting Crowns was playing in the background or anything like that. It was just, a, it was just what you did. You went and put things on the bulletin board. The church door was that bulletin board. Everybody went in and out and saw it. You just posted these 95 questions. Maybe the Pope might want to know that there are people abusing these privileges, selling these indulgences and taking advantage of poor people. Little did he know that that very act was being sanctioned by the Pope. The Pope was the one telling the people to go do that. And this guy soon found that out as he was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. We all know that this guy's name was Martin Luther, a monk, a Roman Catholic priest, And on October 31st, 1517, 498 years ago yesterday, he went to that church door and posted just 95 questions for debate and changed the world forever. Well, this guy was still dealing with his guilt. Even though he had formally protested the Roman Catholic Church, he had been excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, he was now dead set against the Roman Catholic Church. There was no more trying to make nice with the Pope. The Pope hated him, and he hated the Pope. And if you don't believe he hated the Pope, you can read some of the things he wrote about him or drew about him because he was an avid cartoonist. Just, you know, make sure you turn your safety filter on on the Google when you look up Martin Luther's cartoons because they're, they're kind of graphic sometimes. So Luther... Now, in a formal state of protest against the Roman Catholic Church, he's now able to study the Bible as a monk, a priest. Now he's removed from that, but at least he has access to the Scriptures. And in his process of translating the Scriptures into German, something that had never been done before, for the common people in Germany to be able to read with their own eyes, he was translating it, and he came across a verse that changed his life forever. In Romans 1, verse 17, turn your attention there. For in it, and he's just got done talking about the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. When he meditated on this verse, he thought about it. He said this, At last, meditating day day and night by the mercy of God on this verse, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live. It is by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I was entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had flung open. Finally, the guilt and the burden of that sin that he had been trying so hard through the Roman Catholic system to put aside, to wipe clean, to be forgiven of, to get rid of that guilt. He couldn't find it in the sacraments. He couldn't find it in confession. He couldn't find it in the monastery. He couldn't find it in the Roman Catholic Church at all. But here in Romans 1.17, in the gospel, he sees the truth that the righteous shall live by faith. And it changed his world and ours forever. 
So Luther there discovered, apart from the rites, apart from the rituals, apart from the sacraments and indulgences of the Roman Catholic Church, the righteousness that God requires of us is given to us as a gift from God's grace through one instrument and one instrument alone. And that instrument is faith. So today, 498 years after that day when Luther posted his 95 theses, we are not beyond our need to rehearse this beautiful gospel that tells us the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. And I want us to point out one verse tonight, okay? So, you know, rest easy. One verse, Romans 1.17. Three things from this verse. Just three precepts, three doctrinal points, if you will, from this verse. Simply, righteousness, life, and faith. If you can't remember that, just looking at it. The righteous shall live by faith. So let's start out, start out by talking about the idea of righteousness. What is righteousness? What does it mean to be righteous? The word is diakosune, the Greek word for being straight, being just. It kind of has a connotation of being fair and balanced, not like Fox News, but in a, in a more fair and balanced way, towards the center, more or less. It is justice. It is fairness. It is perfection. It is purity. It speaks of God's character as holy. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he hears the angels crying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And this righteousness, this perfection, this moral, ethical purity comes from God's holiness. Because he's totally separated from us, because he is perfect and majestic and splendor and glory and sinlessness and perfection, this just comes out of him. This righteousness is just who he is because he is holy, because he is God, because he is perfect. This righteousness just comes from him. He is just and he is perfect and he is good. Psalm 25, 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 18 tells us God is blameless, God is pure, God is astute, as opposed to crooked. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus, when the rich young ruler approached him and said, Good teacher, even Jesus, to teach this man a lesson, said, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. God's command to us, his expectation of us, isn't any less than his own character. Why would God require something of you that he himself is not? That would be hypocrisy for God. So tonight, God requires of you perfection. He requires of you holiness. He requires of you righteousness. Matthew 5, 8, 5, 58, 48, sorry, I'll get my numbers right in a minute. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, you are to be perfect even as, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the book of Leviticus, we see a number of times the Lord says, you are to be holy even as I am holy. Now, how are we to, how are we to take these commands? How holy is God? When Jesus says, be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. When the book of Leviticus says, you be holy just as I am holy, what kind of holiness, what kind of perfection are we really talking about? We're talking about utter, pure, spotless, sinlessness and perfection. You think you know the meaning of the word, and you do. Perfection means perfect. And Jesus says, you be perfect. Leviticus says, you be holy. How do we know what holiness is? Well, God in his grace gives us a law. 
It can be summed up in these Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet. So if you want, there's a ten-point checklist that you may follow to the T. And you will have eternal life with God in heaven. If you can follow that ten-point checklist, it's very simple. It's just ten things you're not supposed to do and ten things you need to make sure you're supposed to do. If you do them to the T, all your life from birth till death, good job. You're perfect. You're righteous. Sounds easy, right? Look at Romans chapter 3. Two chapters to the right of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 3, just in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What about Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees? Think in Matthew chapter 5. The Pharisees were the holy, the upright. The masses looked at them as the keepers of the law, the holy people. These were the high priests of that day, the, the, the religious crowd that Luther might have thought he wanted to be part of at that time in his life. And Jesus said to them, let's just ask tonight, have you kept the law? The Pharisees said, Jesus, we've never murdered anyone. And Jesus said, ah, but if you have harbored anger in your heart, you are guilty of murder already. Well, Jesus, none of us have committed adultery. But if you lust after a woman in your heart, you have already committed adultery. James tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So this great law appears to us by the mercy of God. Seemingly, you know, mercy is, sounds like a weird word at this point because we're looking at this and we're saying, okay, well, I've harbored anger, I've lusted. If you go down the rest of the list, we've broken all of them. And no one can say they haven't. First John says that if you say you have no sin, you are a liar and you make God a liar. So we're all guilty of the whole law. We are absolutely, not only completely imperfect, we're totally lost in sin. So what in the world are we supposed to do with this whole situation? That puts us in a predicament, doesn't it? God says, you be perfect, you be holy. God is perfect, God is holy. This was the situation to which Luther was looking at himself. And he said, God is perfect, God is holy, God is righteous, and I am not. I am a sinner. And we look at the testimony of Scripture, not only from the Ten Commandments themselves, but all throughout the New Testament, and we see this testimony about ourselves. We are sinners. And so we're at an impasse with God. Condemned sinners, righteous God, and yet he commands us, if you want eternal life, be righteous. Even the prophets of the Old Testament, the most holy men of their time, 
Listen to what they say when they encounter God. Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees God, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Think about what Job said when he finally saw God face to face. I've spoken once, but I will speak no more. I put my hand over my mouth. I won't argue with you anymore. Think about Habakkuk chapter 3, which we'll read in a little while. When Habakkuk finally realized the holiness of God, he said, rottenness enters my bones. This is the steady rhythm of the reaction to people encountering the holy righteousness of God throughout the entire Old and New Testaments. Jesus revealed himself for who he was in the garden when they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Are you him? You know what he said? I am. And what happened? They all fell back as if dead. This is the common steady rhythm of the reaction of people encountering the holiness of God. So what makes you think you're any different? What makes me think I'm any different than those holy men of old who saw God face to face? What makes us any different from Luther who looked at a perfect God in the face and said, Woe is me for I am undone. I am a sinner and no amount of things I can do can seem to fix that because I am guilty of not only one part of the law but the whole thing. That's the righteousness that's being discussed here in Romans 1.17. When we see the righteous, the righteous, the perfect, the upright, the correct, the pure, the holy, the spotless, the blameless, the stainless, the sinless. And we know that's not us. We know that we're not sinless. We know that we're not righteous. We know that that word cannot talk about us. That word cannot be speaking of us. This is the reason for Luther's madness. This is why he goes to unknown extremes to try to remove that guilt and remove that conscience that's telling him, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. He recognized the holiness and the righteousness of God, and he recognized his own sin. Secondly, life. What is this life that's being spoken of? What is this, they shall live? The righteous shall live. What is this life that's being spoken of? It could be referring to a way of life. Now, we can read this verse in a number of ways. Now, there's one interpretation that is the heart of what we're talking about, and that's what I'll get to. But that doesn't make this interpretation incorrect. We could be talking about simply a way of life, the way we walk in life. It could simply be saying what 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says. We walk or we live by faith, not by sight. That's an adequate interpretation. And if you don't believe me, there it is in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We can interpret it that way, and that's a good thing to say. Your walk of life, your living should be characterized by walking by faith and not by sight. That's a good thing to follow. Or what about the reference to Hebrews 11.1 when it gives us that classic definition of faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So walking in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of things when we don't know the future, we don't know the circumstances, we're in trials, we're in persecution, we're in uh, tribulation, we don't know what to do next, simply walking and moving forward by faith in God, trusting in God. Okay, that's a great generic explanation of what it could mean to say the just shall live by faith. But we still have a problem, don't we? We're not just. We're not righteous. We're not sinless. This life is referring to something far deeper than just the way in which we live. 
And Paul is on purpose taking us back to Habakkuk in our minds. So let's go to Habakkuk chapter 2 to see where Paul's pulling this from. Habakkuk chapter 2. The opening part of Habakkuk in chapter 1 is um, Habakkuk complaining to the Lord about Israel's sin. All around me is sin and idolatry and adultery. They're not keeping your law. They're not following justice. This is Habakkuk's complaint to the Lord as a prophet. God, why aren't you doing anything to punish your people because they are in sin and breaking your law? In chapter 2, we have the answer. Actually, in chapter 1, we have the answer. God says, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, a pagan, foreign army. God says, I'm going to raise them up and give them power to overtake you as judgment for your sin. And in classic God fashion, I love this in the Old Testament. He calls a nation to do something, but also punishes them for doing it. Go figure that out. I'm going to raise the Chaldeans up against you, but don't worry, I'm going to then punish them for their arrogance and their pride. It's what he did to Assyria in the book of Isaiah. It's what he promises to do to the Chaldeans. Either way, that's what God says is going to happen. So Habakkuk doesn't quite like that answer. Now, he wanted punishment to come, but at the hands of lawless sinners and a pagan army against your chosen covenant people, God, surely you're more holy than that. And God answers him again in Habakkuk chapter 2, and he says this. Look in verse 4. I'm sorry, start in verse 1. Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at the watch post and my station myself over the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is after he's complained again. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, the vision about the Chaldeans. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, and it will not delay. Look at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. There's this certain judgment coming, Habakkuk. Yeah, you might not be familiar with this whole wait for it, wait for it. That's what's going on here. Go up on your high place, Habakkuk, and wait for it. It might seem like it's slow and coming like we talked about in Second Peter last, last week. It might seem like it's never going to come, like God is delaying in his promise. But that judgment is coming. You can write it down on stone, God says, and let him who reads it run. Run for their lives because this judgment is sure and this judgment is coming. And the obvious context then for Habakkuk is judgment. Judgment is coming. The Chaldeans are coming. They're going to march. They're going to invade, much like we read about in Amos as he's prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel. This judgment is coming, and it's not going to be pleasant for you. There's going to be lots of death. This is an army coming in. This is not a night. This is not just a change in the political structure of Israel. This is an invading army that will kill you and will take what belongs to you and make it theirs. This is not a nice group of people coming in to teach you a lesson for God. They don't care what God thinks. God is simply using them to come in and punish you, and there will be no mercy. The context is obviously judgment judgment and death. 
Paul latches on to that context. Let's go to, back to Romans chapter 1. And look where Paul goes next. Again, sometimes our subheadings and divisions in our English Bibles do us a disservice because it seems like things are broken up, but that's not the case. We could just keep reading through and it would make more sense, I think. The righteous shall live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now look down to chapter 2, first five verses. Paul continues, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Just like Habakkuk, the context here is judgment. And Paul is not referring to just a temporary invading army whose judgment will kind of set things right, bring the people to repentance, and then God will go on working with Israel. This is the final judgment Paul is talking about. It's being stored up in heaven, not only through the Chaldeans, not through some invading earthly army, but this is God whose wrath and justice and anger at sin is being stored up for that day, and that day is coming. That's the context in which Paul says, but the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Do you want to live? When God's judgment comes, do you want to live? The answer is simple then. What you must do. It's right there. Be righteous. You've got to be righteous. You've got to be perfect. You've got to be sinless if you ever hope to live and escape God's judgment. Now remember, that's simple, right? Just follow the law, follow the Ten Commandments. But wait, remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one does good. Remember what James says, if you've fallen in one aspect of the law, you've fallen in all the aspects of the law. So judgment is coming, God's justice is going to rain down, and the only thing you can do to escape it is to be righteous. And we've already discovered that we can't do that. So God's left us in a dead end here, hasn't he? What is there to do? If you're going to live and escape God's judgment, you've got to be perfect, and we're not perfect, so I guess it's just over for us. We must be righteous to live. We are not righteous. What do we do? Lastly, let's look at faith. The just or the righteous shall live by faith. We haven't yet explored this word tonight, and I've kind of left you up in the air on purpose. Many of us already know how this all works out, hopefully, because that's the gospel, and (laughs) that's how you're saved. So I'm hoping I'm preaching to the choir here tonight, but just in case, let the Lord open your heart tonight. This whole book of Romans, really the whole gospel, really the whole Bible hinges on this linchpin of faith. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Many of you will know this as the faith chapter, and that's not for, uh, you know, no reason. It's probably the, the most concentrated use of the word faith in the whole New Testament, without a doubt. 
Of course, we start in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 with that classic definition that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Go down to verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned that God, concerning the events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham again, though he, when he was tested, lifted up Isaac. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. Look at verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. So after this definition of faith is latching on to things that are hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen, thinking about 2 Corinthians in our, in our minds that we walk by faith, not by sight, this whole chapter is about Old Testament saints who latched on to some promise that God had given them. That Abraham being promised an offspring and a nation that would be a blessing to all the nations, he believed God and reached out and grabbed the promise in faith. Noah believing that, taking God at his word that he was going to destroy the earth, obeyed God and built an ark. He reached out and grabbed the promise that God had made. Abraham, being tested in that same promise that he already had, when God said, offer up Isaac, he showed his faith by willingly taking Isaac up to sacrifice him, showing for sure and for certain that he believed what God had told him. Moses knowing that God had promised his people a land, that he had promised them his law and his presence, and that he would be with them, and he would go with them. He went to Egypt, suffering the reproach, it says, of Christ, bearing the suffering that resembles that which Christ would carry. He reached out and grabbed this promise of God, a promised child, a promised flood, a promised land, a promised law, a promised people. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that. But Hebrews doesn't say that they gained that by following the law. In fact, you know what it says about Abraham? He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed the promise that was told to him, and when he believed it, God credited him, accounted him as righteous, even though he was not. Not by obeying commandments 1 to 10, not by doing such and such and such and such and following certain laws and rules and regulations or sacraments or any of those things that Luther might have faced, simply believing the promise of God. Now, God is not, I don't think, giving us any more promised children today in that sense. I don't think he's making covenants in that way today. The final one was made through Jesus Christ. I don't think God is taking us into some literal promised land anymore, except in the end times when we are all there in the new earth and the new heavens and the new Jerusalem. So what promises has God made to you that you're supposed to latch onto and believe through which it can then be said of you like it was said to Abraham, Carrie believed that promise and it was counted to God as righteousness. Josh believed that promise and it was counted to him as righteousness. Put your name in there. Blank believed God and it was counted to me 
as righteousness. What promise is God making? Now, it's not an individual promise to you. Understand that. It's a promise that God has made to a people which you have to latch onto by faith. What is that promise? Look at Romans chapter 3, what was read this morning by Brother Steve. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 19. If it's not by following the law, if it can't be attained through works, then why does God tell us the law? Why the Ten Commandments? Why the whole law system? Look here in verse 19. We know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, what was that word I told you for righteousness? Kind of first and foremost. Perfection, purity, okay? Remember, just. Just. Not as in simply or merely, but just as in perfect and pure, fair, stainless, spotless. Paul says here, look in verse 20. No human being will be justified That is made just, made righteous by the works of the law. But he tells us why the law came. It says, so that every mouth may be stopped. Literally, so that everyone would shut up in the presence of God. The Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence. Who will stand before God and say anything? If even the holy prophet Isaiah couldn't even open his mouth except to place a curse on himself. Do you know that's what Isaiah was doing? Placing a curse on himself? You know, we, we throw around, you know, woe is me. You know, we make fun of it sometimes. That was a curse when he was saying, woe is me. In a very, I'm not going to use strong language. He's placing a curse, an anathema on himself because he knew his own sinfulness. He literally said, I'm coming apart. I'm undone. For my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of hosts. So in the presence of God, in that holy law, the Ten Commandments, you know, we hang it up in our kitchen, we hang it up in our dens, we hang it up in places, we want it in our courthouses and all that stuff. You should be terrified of the Ten Commandments. They are there as a schoolmaster, not drawing you to themselves as in that's that's some kind of way of salvation through following those things as some kind of checklist. You can't do that. It says the opposite to you. It doesn't say this is how you're saved. It says this is why you are condemned before God. It's not a checklist of righteousness that you can fulfill and attain salvation. It's a checklist for which we go down all the way, all the way, one, two, three, through ten, certifying the justness of our damnation. And that's what Paul says. In the presence of God's holy law, There's no justification there because all it does is show you who you are as a sinner. Abraham, though, was declared righteous. He was declared just, not because of the law, but because he believed God for a promise. Now, good news. Romans 3, 21. If it's not through the law, the law only condemns us, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God 
Here you go. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. And here's that condemnation again. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show that he is righteous. On the cross as Jesus died... I could even, that, that's the hymn right there. And on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every curse was laid on him. There in the cross, the justice and the righteousness of God is satisfied because his only begotten son, the pure, perfect, spotless, and holy one, was bearing the sins of the world. Your sin and my sin. It showed the righteousness of God. Now verse 26. It was also to show his righteousness in the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's your answer. That's the promise that God puts forward to you tonight. Abraham, the promised child, the promised land, the promised people. The promised ark, the promised flood, all that good promises of the Old Testament to which those people looking for the day when God would bring his Messiah to earth, they believed God's promises and like Abraham, it was credited credited to them as righteousness. It was counted to their account, credited to them, given to them as a gift because they believed the promise that God had told them. Now every single promise of the Old Testament, every single promise God has ever made is summed up in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. In the book of Colossians, Paul says, every promise of God is yes and amen in him. It is complete, it is done, it is finished in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why he says on the cross, it is finished. It isn't as if something is now made possible. Something is simply made enacted. It is made actual. There is the promise of God being offered to you for the forgiveness of your sins. That's how you can be righteous. That's the promise God offers you tonight. If only like Abraham, if only simply like Abraham, to hear that promise, you are a sinner, you deserve hell, but I have given you Jesus. He is the atonement for your sin. What greater promise is there than that? How firm a foundation is that? And God calls you to respond. How? Not by the works of the law. Not through some human instrument. But by the one instrument we've talked about tonight. The instrument of faith. Simply reaching out and laying hold of the promise of God. And saying, I believe that promise. And if it's not very clear to you right now, what happens on the other end is this. You are declared righteous. Not because you are righteous. Not because you've attained a level of godliness. Not because you've done enough sacraments or enough good works or enough anything. This was the end of Luther's quest. And when he discovered this and rediscovered it for the rest of Christianity, it changed Christianity forever. And we are worshiping as we're worshiping right now. Listening to the Bible in our own language. I don't know if you know this or not, but actually singing songs together. When we take the Lord's Supper, you actually get to take it. 
and you get to drink the cup and the bread. You know, people didn't do that for a very long time before the Reformation. Even now, most Roman Catholics only take the cup. But you get to take both. Why? Because there was a Reformation in the church. And Luther and others recovered the gospel that had been lost for so long underneath church tradition and church councils and popes and all this junk that had piled up over top of it. They come along and they sweep it clear of the rubble. And there, as Luther said, is the precious jewel of God's gospel lying at the bottom. That we are justified as a free gift of God through nothing else but faith in Christ. Unless you think that faith is some kind of work that you perform, Ephesians 2 makes it very clear that it even is a gift of God. Faith in the promises of God. That ended Luther's quest for salvation. It can end your quest for salvation tonight. Are you burdened with your sin like Luther was? Are you burdened with the thought of hell like Luther was? You should be if you're not in Christ. It's not a mean thing to wish that on you tonight. It's a loving thing to wish that you feel the condemnation of God because hopefully that will propel you to the Savior who is able to save you through his blood. Do you feel the weight of your sin, the burden of your sin? Have you asked yourself, how can I be right with God? Are you even as someone who maybe even thinks you're saved? Is your thought of the gospel something that you're trying to do? Do you have the Ten Commandments in your kitchen or den? I don't mean anything wrong with that. I mean, but are you looking at those as something you have to fulfill every day in order to stay right with God because you're going to fail Him each and every day? And your verdict at the end of every minute is going to be guilty, 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 guilty. If that's your concept of the gospel, you're believing a false one. But tonight, that promise is here for you. God is putting forward Jesus as the propitiation of sins and saying... Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll remove the burden. I'll remove the labor. And I'll simply give you rest. My faith has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. It's enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him, he'll never cast me out. My heart is leaning on the word, the living word of God. Salvation through my Savior's name, salvation through his blood. My great physician heals the sick, the lost he came to save. For me, his precious blood he shed, for me, his life he gave. And everybody, you know the chorus. I need no other argument I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes as we close in prayer tonight. My invitation is not for you to come up here. My invitation is not for you to say something. My invitation is simply this. You've heard the gospel tonight. The righteous law of God been set forward to you. If you're a Christian, if you've already believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, you're no longer under the condemnation of that law, according to Romans 8, chapter 1. There's no more condemnation for you. Why? Because Jesus took it all. 
But tonight, if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior and repented of your sins, and in doing so, figuratively reached out and grabbed the promise that God is offering you tonight through him, if you've not done that, the command is simply to do it. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the gospel is simply this. You are a sinner. Jesus was sinless. He offered his sinless life for sinners. And he offers you forgiveness tonight through nothing else but faith in his grace. Just simply reach out and take the promise. I don't know how to do it. Just simply reach out and take the promise by the Holy Spirit's power, believing and trusting in the name of Jesus. And you can always come talk to me or Brother Stephen after the service and tell us about a decision you've made or a commitment you feel like you need to make or, or whatever is on your mind right now. But do not delay and resist the calling and the drawing of the Holy Spirit tonight. That's all for this edition of Living Faith. Stay connected to the teaching and preaching ministry of First Baptist Church by subscribing to this weekly podcast using your computer or mobile device. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet every Sunday for worship at 1045 a.m. and 6 o'clock p.m. We invite you to join us if you don't currently have a church home and are looking for a place where the Word of God is proclaimed with power and clarity. You can find access to all of this and much more by visiting our website at fbcap.net. We look forward to connecting with you. Until then, this is Living Faith.